Welcome to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast, hashtag Pitbull Stories edition. In all of the installments of Pitbull Stories, I have special guests who share their stories of what it was like to um, acquire a Pitbull type dog, to live with a Pitbull type dog, and kind of share their experience of how they worked through some of those stigmas and how they advocate for the breed now. I've been the proud owner of two blocky headed dogs and our current blocky headed dog, Waylon, is an American Staffordshire Terrier, and I know what it feels like to experience some of the stigmas that the world wants to throw at you, and my intention with this series is to reassure all of you amazing blocky-headed owners that our beloved pit bulls are amazing, and we can play a huge role in advocating for the breed. So please enjoy these episodes, and if you'd like to be a guest on Pitbull Stories, please send me a DM over on the Instagram at a feeling underscore NCO. All right, you guys, you know how much I love VetCS CBD products for my dogs. Great news. They make CBD products for humans. I got the orange flavored uh, dropper and I put it in my Lady Grey lattes and it is so freaking delightful. So you can get CBD for your dog. You can get CBD for you. Check out VetCS.com and you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your purchase. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. We are going to be talking about a pretty important topic today. It's going to be a little outside of the dog training realm, but um, for those of you who know me and follow me on Instagram, I am not afraid to talk about things that need to be talked about. Um, So we are going to talk about racism and pit bulls in today's episode. So prepare yourselves. Um, And I want to just do, you know, a little caveat here. This is really targeted at the wonderful white pit bull advocates who listen to this podcast. We love you, but we got to recognize our part in a a racist practice and and system. So um, without further ado, uh, Cassie, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the listeners? Yeah, for sure. Hi, I'm Cassidy. I am a new dog mom. Um, I just started an Instagram for my dog because I'm one of those people. Um, I've been an animal lover for a long time, but I now have the time and money to be able to volunteer more. Um, What else? Oh, I'm also getting a PhD. That's the part I always forget. I'm getting a PhD in African-American studies in English and my research is on 19th century African-American eco-poetics. So I read about old black people loving their dogs too. Oh my God, that is so freaking cool. So um, Thank you. I mean, I feel like you need to tell the listeners about your dog. We opened that can of worms. You've got to tell them. More. Great. <laughs> Happy to. It's the only thing I talk about. Uh, I have Ginger. She is, her papers say black mouth cur, but we know there's a bunch of stuff in there that I'm not allowed to talk about or we'll get kicked out of our apartment. Um, she is 10 months old. She was rescued in Florida, living in an industrial park with her siblings, one of whom died because they all had parvo. Um, and yeah, now she's living it up and her other sibling doesn't live that far away. So we get to play with Archie too. 
Oh my God. That's so cool. I love her. She's so cute. And I love how you like celebrate, like she's been with us for this amount of months. This is what I've learned because like, that's seriously the whole premise, right. Of what I do in my work as a dog trainer is like helping people celebrate the beautiful relationship they get to have with their dogs and do some training on the side, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, it's profound. It really is. Okay. So I want to spotlight what kind of led to like us talking for this podcast episode right now. So there was a post on Instagram. Um, and I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was a reference to an article. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, let's see here. Okay. I, I, here's the Instagram post. Would an anti-racist, anti-sexist and anti-classist approach to working with pit bulls look like, right? Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk a little bit about the, quote, like where that came from, and we can kind of roll from there. Yeah, so this quote is an article that's done by this academic researcher who cares about dogs and people, um, who spent a lot of time volunteering and collecting data on what she saw as a volunteer, uh, working with Pipple Rescues. She saw a lot of narratives being crafted that frankly just disparaged black and brown people, disparaged poor people, um, and made Pitbull rescue for some weird reason align really specifically with white supremacist ideals, like ideas of white supremacist morality that um, folks feel like black and brown people don't have access to. So there was a lot of revisionist histories of where these dogs came from saying that they were abused or neglected or just dumped like trash in one instance uh, when the people that actually had to give up these dogs are really torn up about it or doing their best to take care and love these animals but poverty does what poverty does and they had to make tough choices and instead of being helped which would help the pit bulls uh, they just had their dogs taken from them or surrendered them um, and then lied on (laughs) Yeah. Right. And like, I think for everyone listening who um, is white, I think that at first it's easy to get really defensive and be like, I'm not guilty of that. I don't do that. I'm part of the solution, but it's not about us. It's about acknowledging a system that is, whether we like it or not, part of our subconscious. Right. And like being a part of rescue and pit bull work Um, There are a lot of things that, and I'm not trying to say we're doing these intentionally, but, you know, whether intentional or unintentional, we need to uncover and own so that we can be moving towards being a part of the solution instead of perpetuating the the white supremacist narrative. Um, So I want to kind of go back in time a little bit here. So for everyone listening, a lot of what we're talking about today that I will be referencing is from... um, Brown and Dickey's book, Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon, right? So um, amazing book. If you hadn't, you, re- you haven't read it, you really should. Um, not only does it talk about pitbulls, but it also highlights a lot of what we want to accomplish in our conversation today. So um, in the early like 1970s, 80s, we start to see this shift, right? And like the American desire for dogs. And we kind of see a shift in the guard dog, right? So this is not just pit bulls, but you know, Dobermans, German shepherds, there's this big shift in people wanting guard dogs. And um, Cassie, if you want to speak to this just a little bit, I, I feel like 
sure, people are getting guard dogs, but why? I think we have to talk about the communities in which we're needing guard dogs. Why do they need guard dogs, right? Yeah, so I would say around this time, um, people are dealing with extreme poverty. And what happens when you have communities that are poor, that don't get the resources that they need to keep young people in particular occupied, um, you know, proper education, all of the things that cost money, but uh, a lot of community, not communities, a lot of cities won't spend money on these areas. Um, that leads to an uptick in crime and violence. So if you're living in a space with a lot of crime and violence, you don't necessarily want to have a weapon or you do have a weapon, but you still feel like you need extra security, you still don't feel safe where you live, then you have the option of getting a guard dog just as a deterrent um, to, yeah, to make you feel safe in a place where your city should be making you feel safe, but they're failing. Right. And I think that you know, something that we talk about in dog training all the time is like, what is the emotional reason for the surface behavior that's presenting? And I think that mm -hmm. same, you know, framework is really comparable here. Why do people feel like they need guard dogs? And we unpack that, right? That like, they don't feel safe. They, their needs are not being met. They're not getting what they need to let alone survive, but thrive. Right. And I think that that's really important that we highlight that, right. That, you know, it's, it's not the people's fault that they feel unsafe, right. It's the broken right. system that has led to people feeling unsafe to the degree where they feel like they need a guard dog. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and guys, we're speaking general in timelines here, but, you know, that's like early 70s and 80s. And then, you know, when we kind of come into the 90s, we start to see more of a demonizing, right, and associations of guard dogs and a lot of instances pit bulls and that being associated mm -hmm. associated with, you know, black and brown people. Um, and right. I think that that really starts the national conversation and, you know, villainizing of Black people and pit bulls together. So, yeah, as you were saying, what happens in the 70s and 80s when you have crime exploding the way it does because people feel like they don't have other options, people don't have other options, um, then pit bulls especially get associated with gangbangers and thugs. And then in the 90s, when you have politicians building platforms on being tough on crime, that includes being tough on the animals that are associated with these crime now. And that's, uh, unfortunately, pit bulls got stuck with that buck, just like black and brown people got stuck with the label yeah. of criminal. Yeah. And, and I punished think something for else... <laughs> Right. And I think something else that is interesting to bring into this conversation is that, you know, there was a lot of breeding, selling, making money in pit bulls for these communities. And like, I think from the outside, it's really easy to villainize and be like they're backyard breeders, but we can't move the conversation away from the fact that if you're living in poverty or living in fear, breeding dogs makes money, right? Like that's a way to help you survive. And I think that there's been so much of this, like, the backyard breeders and these people breeding bad dogs when in fact the dogs were a means so that people could survive. Right. Again, didn't have other options. Um, so just the way, like I said, black and brown people get stuck with this label and so do pit bulls simultaneously. Um, despite the fact that 
they aren't given many choices. Um, and instead of offering help to black and brown people so that they can keep their dogs, um, they just get criminalized and get punished. So I feel like, you know, generally speaking in the media, there was really still this, this, you know, dynamic drawn between black people, brown people, people of color and pit bulls, right? And, and that's a really clear distinction that's drawn, right? So I think that public, public perception is still, we're still afraid of pit bulls because we live mm -hmm. in a society that's trying to, you know, demonize any people of color anywhere, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, that's still happening in our public perception, right? Like people are still kind of afraid of pit bulls. They're like, I don't know. And then I feel like, you know, the 90s, we really start to see more of an explosion of like, you know, the visual images, right? Of pit bulls being in Hollywood and music videos and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they become more popular, but we still don't see like the break off where like white people accept them as like a desirable dog until like in the, the later in the nineties. Um, and, you know, I think that something that was really interesting that, again, guys, we're referencing um, Brown Dickey's book here, but in 1993, there were 25,000 murders in the United States, and a vast majority of those murders were Black men, right, for various reasons, right, police mm -hmm. and, and other crime and stuff like that. And then we start to look at the early 2000s when pit bulls start, like, really reaching headlines, they're these vicious monsters, their numbers, right? They're kill they're being killed in really high percentages too, right? And it's mm -hmm. I think we have to be honest about this conversation, right? About how like black men were being murdered alongside pit bulls. Yeah, the uptick in euthanizations without any cause just based on breed didn't the history didn't matter. Honestly, the breed didn't even really matter, right? Because pit bull is an umbrella term and people were just going based on what they saw it's not like they were getting dna tests on every dog they thought they saw you have a big square shaped head you are a pit bull and you need to die for that um and i think that also goes along with now we're going to take it way back but <laughs> in the late 19th early 20th century or late 18th all of the 19th and some of the early 20th century, you have race science dictating that Black people are predisposed to labor because they have special muscles and their skin is formulated for the sun. And um, then you have pit bulls having all of these reports on exceptional bite strength, even though there are just as many reports saying that their bite strength is the same as other very strong breeds. They're not that abnormal. Um, and it's just like race science all over again, right. using what is supposed to be, but never is an unbiased, um, just objective technique or method to justify uh, an attitude that already exists. Like race science was a response to the, the already existing belief that black people are inferior. Um, so now these reports are just confirming fears that people already have and fueling the fire. Yeah. And like, I feel like in the, the sensational headlines of pit bulls, the black, the black and brown community were 
equally getting the target of that, right? Like it was pitbull headlines, but the Mm -hmm. associations and like the, the things that we subconsciously take in, right. When we don't look outside of the system, not only are we thinking about, you know, oh gosh, pitbulls are so aggressive. They're so dangerous. Then these other images come into our mind, right. Of Mm -hmm. black and brown people being those same headlines. Well, yeah the story is often assumed to be that pitbulls are dangerous because black people irresponsibly bred them to be because all black people want to do is fight dogs and now we have this whole breed of bad dogs that doesn't actually exist yeah yeah so I mean, I think that that segues beautifully into like the early 2000s because I feel like the Michael Vick case, I feel like that was when I really feel like the the white saverism came into the pit bull community, right? Like I feel like when Mm -hmm. that made headlines and, you know, obviously we don't condone dog fighting, but I find it really unfortunate that I don't want to excuse anything that Vic did, but like, I feel like that only continued to perpetuate that black people are the problem in pit bulls, which isn't the truth mm-hmm. at all. Right. But that's what the media wanted us to believe. Mm-hmm. It's um, that confirmation bias all, all over again. The Michael Vick case just fueled the fire that already existed, just confirmed narratives that people already wanted to believe. Um, and made it really harder to counter that, really hard to counter that narrative because there's this evidence in the media. Like, look at this one black person or it was him and his cousin. Look at these two black people who hate dogs. And that means all black people are bad dog owners. Yeah, right. And like, you know, obviously like, you know, his career and all of that, I think that that made it more attractive headlines. And like, mm-hmm. I really feel like, you know, from where I sit, that were that was a pivotal moment when, you know, white people felt felt like they needed to save a dog, which couldn't have been any further from the truth, right? And like, I think, you know, the dog fighting numbers and sensationalizing, like dog fighting is happening. I don't want to deny that. But I think that there's this huge emphasis on it now of like, there's all these dog fighters. We got to fight them when the numbers are not what you think that they really are, right? Like there's mm-hmm. really small numbers. Dog fighting isn't this giant operation that like in the early nineties, they wanted us to believe that it was right. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, that conversation about like dog fighting, it just gave, yeah, it just gave the white community another excuse to, to say that they had to save dogs when in fact they right. didn't. Right, they didn't have to save dogs I mean, from black people. It wasn't the right. Um, there's a way to save the dogs without demonizing the people that have the dogs. And I feel like what's missing right now is an approach, a people-first approach. Um, you can help animals by helping people take care of their animals. You don't just have to take them over yourself. Yeah. Right. So. Um, I think there's a lot of organizations, right, that are like working to empower people and their dogs, but something that, um, again, guys, in, in the, the Pitbull book, she talks about an organization called Pets for Life in Pennsylvania, and their whole emph- emphasis is empowering the human end, right, and something that I found not, re- not astounding at all, it makes plenty of sense, is that people in poverty need their dogs more than you would if you're just like surviving and thriving. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the emotional 
companionship and joy that a dog brings to someone's life, especially if they're facing poverty or circumstances mm-hmm. outside of that. Yeah, I I think this is an issue with poverty at large and resources at large. We feel like we as in a, the society feels like poor people shouldn't be allowed to enjoy things, enjoy luxuries, um, like the way we limit how you can spend your, um, your food stamps. You can't have certain foods because those foods are too nice for you and you're not gonna be responsible. I feel like it carries over into the dog community where um, dog ownership and especially pit bull ownership is reserved for a certain class of people that can enjoy them and everyone else doesn't deserve them. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think that this is really when we get into racist racism, just being so rampant in the rescue community. Right. And, um, not only in, you know, villainizing owners who are doing the best that they can, Um, but also, you know, the racist adoption policies and, you know, the stories, these sensational backstories to the dogs, right? So do you want to speak to some of those details about like the specific ways in which white saviorism, saviorism, excuse me, is, has impacted, continues to impact adoption policies and, and stuff like that. Yeah. The Gunther article really goes into a lot of this, um, really into the marketing side, how pit bulls are being remarketed, rebranded um, by a proximity to whiteness. Uh, as soon as the dogs get, she talks about the flower crowns and the nice backgrounds and the pajamas on them to make them look more uh, infant-like and less threatening and less associated with black and brown manhood. Um, in order to market them to a target audience, which is middle-class white families. And as soon as the dog is in that context, they're no longer threatening. So uh, I think there's, I've heard a lot of stories about the difference between what happens when a black man is walking a pit bull down the street, the assumptions that is made that are made about that dog and that person. Whereas if a white woman is walking a pit bull down the street, people automatically think, oh, she saved it. She saved that dog. Um, and that dog can't be scary because the, there's this friendly looking white woman next to it. It's impossible to be threatened by this duo. Um, So the Gunther article talks about, yeah, the way the dogs are posed and the way pictures are taken of them, the way the captions are written for those pictures. Um, And she specifically lists an example of a Latinx man who had to give up his dog uh, because he lost his house, not because he was in any way abusing or neglecting this dog. He was very much doing his best to take care of himself and the dog and it didn't work out. So he did what was right for the dog Um, and found a place that could take care of it. Uh, And then the caption was that the dog was discarded like yesterday's newspaper, which is just a lie. It just, again, appeals to that specific target audience um, that wants the feeling of white saviorism to rescue this dog from this mean man who just dumped it like trash and 
welcome it into a white middle-class society. Yeah. And like, I mean, the marketing campaigns, right, were wildly successful. But I think that, you know, and I am guilty of this, right? Like everyone listening, please know, like I'm coming to you from humility. I don't know everything. And I'm recognizing and honoring some things that um, I have done, actions that were racist, right? And and really unpacking those and and realizing that like I need to work to be as anti-racist as I can and recognize those things, right? Like those things that subconsciously I don't even take in, Mm -hmm. right? And like, you know, I have always loved pit bull type dogs and I was the person that the marketing was going to and it worked, right? And I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, I don't want to villainize any of us, you know, white pit bull owners because we mean well, but I think that we do have to acknowledge that like, we did want to quote unquote, save the dog. And that was for us. Mm -hmm. That was for our egos. Right. And like, yes, are we giving dogs good lives? But I think we have to be honest about those things. Yeah. I also want to emphasize that I'm not saying that white people are bad for adopting pit bulls or that the people who do all this work to try to find pit bulls good homes should stop doing this work. I think the work is very important. I think it's equally important to think about, um, just a little of the history of the context behind where some of these actions come from. Uh, And if the priority, all of us wanna save the dogs, all of us want happy dogs, healthy dogs, safe dogs. Um, So when we limit who can adopt these dogs based on stereotypes and prejudices, we're not, that's not helping the dog. That's not saving the dog. Saying that you live in this zip code and therefore I know that you can't take a, take care of this dog. That's just that's just bias and it stops dogs from having potentially very good homes um, because we need the we want to categorize people this way. And like I don't know, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, but like you know, owning pitbull type dogs is. I mean, they're wild, but there's a lot of amazing things that come from that. And I feel like not having equal access to that same joy of owning a pit bull, like a pit bull, like that's, that's a racist practice. Like we're taking a potential joy out of the lap of like a black or brown person who would love, enjoy that dog and give that dog a kick-ass life. Right. Like, I think that that's something that I've really been recognizing, right? That like, that's another thing that's being taken off the table when we think that only a middle-class white person could provide a pit bull or any dog for that matter with the life that it quote unquote deserves. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because an earlier post, which was even more controversial than this one was a quote from another book called Afro Dog um, by I can't, it's a French name, Benedict Boisterone. I'm sorry, everybody (laughs) that speaks French. I really only learned French through reading and I can't pronounce anything. Anyways, (laughs) um, Boisterone has this quote in her book that is, canine companionship is a white privilege. And people were mad about that. (laughs) A lot of people were really supportive. But when I posted that, I also got a lot of flack Um, because people have a hard time recognizing where privilege shows up in their life. And this is just a general message, but acknowledging where you have privilege only helps people that are underprivileged. You're not a bad person for having privilege. I'm not a bad person for having privilege. I have a lot of privileges that allow me to take care of gender and I use them to 
get resources to the people who need them more than me. So recognizing that in a lot of ways, having the love and joy of a dog is reserved for white people. Um, understanding that and unpacking that can only lead to helping other communities that don't have that same access. Right, right. And I think that, you know, we, I have white privilege because I'm white, right? Like not because I earned it just because it is right. And I think that we have to acknowledge that we can use that to be a part of the solution. We can use that to, to spread the joy of owning a pet, whether it's a dog or a cat or whatever, and making sure that that's accessible to every community, regardless of income or skin color. Yeah. What it's, it sounds like to me is if there's a bunch of people standing in front of a locked door and then a white person is holding a key to the door and other people just acknowledge you have the key and they're like, no, I don't. And they toss the key and everyone remains locked out. Whereas you could have just used that key to open it up and let everybody inside. So white white privilege is that key. You have social capital, social power that could allow you to bring resources to the people that don't have the same power. It's not, people aren't asking you to reject white privilege. People just need you to acknowledge that it's there so that we can work with it, move past it. Oh my God, the key metaphor, whoa. It's such a, yes, yes. (laughs) And it's such a good image, right? And like, I think it really accentuates that all you gotta do is open the freaking door. Right. Like it's not even, it's not even that huge of a requirement in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So let, let's highlight some practices in rescue that I think have been historically racist and let's maybe let's spotlight how we can still uphold good practices and like rescue, Mm -hmm. but make sure that they're not racist. Right. Mm -hmm. Right? Which is hard. Yeah, yeah. It's a difficult question to tackle. And I understand the impulse to want to run away from it because it's difficult, but we have to lean in if we want to make a difference. Um, So the first practice that comes to mind is just adoption requirements in some places are clearly dog whistles trying to keep out a particular group of people. When you require a fenced in yard specifically, um, and a certain income level. And I mentioned the zip code thing earlier. Uh, those things are put in place to bar a particular type of dog owner that isn't necessarily a dog owner just because they don't meet a white middle class, middle class ideal. Yeah. So either... I'm not saying get rid of every adoption requirement because of course some vetting needs to happen in order to make sure dogs go to the right places. But um, to do such a vast sweep just in the beginning, like don't even apply if you live in this neighborhood, don't even apply if you uh, live in an apartment, don't apply if you have this type of job or this type of income, that's not helpful for the dogs. Meeting people who want dogs is, I think that's the first step. letting people get in the door. Yeah. And like, I think that it's a huge barrier of entry and like everyone who is Mm -hmm. listening, who runs a rescue, who sweats 
and cries and sheds blood for rescue, we love you, right? We want to support mm-hmm. you. But I think that there are several rescue organizations who I love, but you know, they're requirements, even just the adoption application is so it's almost invasive, right? Like I had a client tell me recently that he applied for a home mortgage and that application was less difficult than the application to adopt a dog. Right. And like, to swing back to your point, we're not suggesting that you just give dogs to anyone for no reason, but I think that Mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that requiring a fence right? Requiring that they have a yard, requiring that they live in a certain place that is racist and discriminatory, right? And again, to your point is not in the dog's best interest. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of dogs who live kick-ass lives in apartments with no backyards, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's me. Ginger's doing great. (laughs) Yes. Right. Right. Like I think that While on the surface, it seems like we're doing what's in the best interest of the dog. That's the point of this conversation is to uncover some of those things that we never even thought twice about Mm -hmm. when it came to like, you know, rescuing dogs. And again, like we're not pretending that we have all the answers here, but I think things to evaluate in your, you know, adoption contract. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Okay. So definitely. Right. Like the, the, the adoption policies, like that's definitely something, those are tangible steps people can take. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about something else because I think that it's really important, but I think that the backstory, the the sensational backstory of Mm -hmm. where the dog came from, especially the pit bull, we've all heard these Mm -hmm. stories. They were a big dog. They, you know, they came from Mm -hmm. a fighting bust. Can you speak to that? Right. Speak to like, help us all understand like why those backstories are harmful. Yeah. Those backstories are harmful because we know that the image that we know what the image you're trying to conjure when you write something like that is, and it demonizes black and brown people disproportionately, poor black and brown people. Um, even when that's just not true, that's not where the dog came from. We know when you write something like that, that's what people are gonna assume because that's the legacy of the breed right now. That's the whole myth around the breed that black and brown people were bad to them and now they're bad dogs. Um, and then all of those on along the same lines, those tearjerker stories where they have the soft music and a white woman is cuddling with a pit bull and oh, it's so sweet and so nice. And she reformed this dog and saved it from its hard knock life before her when that is also not true. They could be having just the same or worse quality of life. We don't really know. We can't make that assumption. Um, And that was one of the debates that was going on in the comments of the post you mentioned in the beginning. People were saying that the nanny dog myth, for example, is just as harmful um, because it doesn't tell people about the reality of having a pit bull. And I think all of our definitions of what the reality of having a pit bull is is very different and getting on the same page about what a pit bull, the umbrella term is and how to take care of them is another first step that needs to take place. People are concerned that there's a nanny dog myth and so people are gonna adopt these dogs and bring them into family homes and leave them unsupervised with children and then kids are gonna get hurt, which I guess is a possible is a possibility, but that's also just bad dog practice to <laughs> bring a dog in and leave it with kids and not train it. Um, 
but not I training to do like, what you need to do. Even that argument, right. About like, you know, mm-hmm. the nanny dog myth that's still centered around whiteness because it could be a mm-hmm. white kid that could get harmed. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, I think that it still misses the point that you're trying to make, right. We're trying to make the point that black and brown people are being demonized in association with pit bulls. Right. And like, mm-hmm going to the nanny myth goes back to the pit bull and white people, not the conversation mm-hmm. around black and brown people and pit bulls. Right. That's just, it doesn't seem like a true history from what I could tell, what I've researched about the nanny dog myth. It's not a true history for white families and it's not a true history for black families either. It's just not the relationship we've had with pit bulls. And that doesn't mean we've had only bad relationships. There are other things on the spectrum. They're just, they're dogs. They're yeah. dogs like other dogs are dogs. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So I know we talked about this a little bit, but I want to just kind of go back to it. Um, I think that, you know, if you are someone listening and you live, you work in like a shelter or something like that, I think that really compassionately meeting whoever the owner is that has to surrender the dog for whatever reason, like hugely important. It seems in, insignificant, right? But, you know, to your point about like, you know, the, the, backstory being changed about this dog who the owner was doing the best that they could, right? Like, mm-hmm. and whether that's, we're changing the story, whether we're just changing the conversations we talk to about with other shelter members or adopters, right? Like, I think being really cognizant of, we don't know everyone's story. And the fact that they brought the dog to us is a good thing, not a bad thing. Right. And what if the thing that is making them bring the dog to you is small? What if it's something you could help with instead of taking their dog away forever? Um, I think this is a post that I did for Foster Dogs a while ago. I interviewed a friend of mine who made a really good point where temporary fosters need to be available so that when dogs, when people aren't capable of taking care of their dogs for a short term, they're able to be reunited with the dogs. And I think you're going to bring up the Katrina situation with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the reports and like confirmed reports about post Katrina, right. So like, obviously shit hit the fan. It was like, right. Unprecedented, right. Like what happened there, but a lot of rescue organizations came in with good intentions, right. To rescue these dogs. But what happened on the flip side of that is really when this conversation of racism comes in and the white savior, Mm -hmm. saviorism, right. The fact that, Um, Black people asked for their dogs back and rescues flat out refused to give them their dogs back, right? And that's like, you know, that's a highlighted incident in the Katrina situation, but that's happening all the time. Mm -hmm. So instead of taking care of people so that they can take care of their dogs, you just make the assumption that you know better and you can do better. Um, And even if that's true, if you know better and can do better, shouldn't you want to inform other people so they can know better and do better? Shouldn't you want to help other people so that there's a bunch of dog owners as great as you are or as great as you want them to be instead of just giving up on them and lying and saying they gave up on their dogs? You could definitely provide the resources, provide the information that they need to meet whatever it is that your standard is. Yeah. And like, you know, this is like a very broad concept that I'm about to say. And I don't pretend that I know everything. I don't work a ton in rescue, but 
what if the money that we use to raise dogs went to support the people who can care for the dogs so they don't even have to come into the sheltering world at all? Absolutely. Right. And like, you know, your post, it really got me thinking about, you know, how my, my mission in dog training has always been to empower people. And like the mm-hmm. same freaking principles apply here because if we can empower people, they take great care of their dogs, right? Absolutely. Like, it's not like taking great care of a dog is really that outside of like what we innately know how to do. It's having the resources and not struggling day in and day out to meet your own needs so that the dog falls like by the wayside. It's people want to take care of their dogs. It's very, it's not as common as we pretend it is that people get dogs specifically to hurt them or to neglect them. A lot of the people coming into your shelters are coming into your shelters because they want to take care of a dog in like 99% of the cases. Um, so help them do that. You care about dogs. You have to care about people so that they can care about dogs. And you have to help them do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Were there any other specific examples you wanted to touch on and on how um, the white rescue community can work towards more blatantly anti-racist policies when it comes to dog, dog adoption? I think starting even earlier, like you said, before getting to the shelters, doing community work, going into the communities that you normally wouldn't adopt to, to tr- give people the training that you think is sufficient, um, make dog food deliveries to people that can't reliably afford dog food, offer uh, subsidized or free services to people so that they can take care of the dogs. Uh, There's a way to lessen this problem. There's a way to solve this problem before it even gets to your doorstep. So I think doing more of that advocacy work in the communities that are demonized in association with pit bulls and with animal welfare in general is a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for everyone listening, if you know of an organization who is already doing this, who we can further support, right? I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. I think that there are a lot of amazing organizations who are literally doing this work right now. Um, Let us know, take a screenshot of this episode, tag us on Instagram and make sure that we know that organization so we can amplify them and support them. Right. Because, you know, again, Mm -hmm. the conversation comes to how can we empower people? right? Because right. when we can do that, the dogs will be just fine. We'll be just fine. So um, right. I, I know we touched on a lot here. Were there any final thoughts you wanted to, to make sure the listeners um, know here? Um, the note that I always like to end on, especially in my posts, is that I'm not trying to attack or target people. I think we all love dogs and we want, we're all learning. I also don't know everything. I'm pretty new to studying racism and animal welfare. Um, so I just invite people to learn, learn along with me. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Like I'm wrong a lot and I need people who know better than me to tell me. And so when I get information, I want to share it too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Cassie, can you tell the listeners how they can connect with you? Absolutely. You can follow me and my dog at, at gingers underscore naps, like gingers, Ginger snaps the cookie, but she sleeps a lot. So it's Ginger's <laughs> underscore naps. Um, I do a lot of infographics about, about this topic and about resources and where people can find them. There's also a link in my bio with 
Uh, I've been collecting black pet, black pet pages. So you can find black pet parents to follow. You can find black trainers, black groomers, a lot of people doing this work if you want to support black businesses. Um, and I'd love to talk to you. And if you want the article, this is the offer that I made on the post. If you want the article, it is behind a paywall right now. So I've just been taking the PDF and sending it to people because academia has too much money and spread the knowledge. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I love that. Okay. So everyone be sure to, um, message, uh, Cassie on Instagram, right? So you can get that. You can, mm-hmm. read, you can learn more. I know all you beautiful people listening are working. You want to be a part of the solution. And I'm so glad that y'all tuned in today and we could have this conversation. And I really just want to encourage all of my listeners to engage in some of the thought provoking posts, right. That you do on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that those conversations are really good and that can open some minds and, you know, get us to a world where, um, people and dogs are safe from racism. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Period. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh my God. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at a goodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at a goodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.